Ask me a question. <laughs> Should I put the cooler on higher? What's that? Should I put the cooler on higher? Uh, yeah, we got the. Yeah, I think it would be more comfortable if it was on higher. Okay. And, and with our little loudspeaker, I should still be able to be heard over the fan. Yes. I'll ask you a question. Okay, wonderful. I, I'd like to. I was really interested in our discussion Thursday about um, the the insights that are traps. Mm -hmm. I guess when you get attached to them. But was I don't think I understood everything. Was that versus other types of insights that um, are not conceptual, that are... Yes. Yes. Um, a question? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, on Thursday we had talked about what we call the, the trap of insights that that you can get into a certain stage in meditation. And the question was, are those insights different from uh, non-conceptual insights? And they are. That, as, as a matter of fact, that is the difference. Uh, the insights that we uh, are seeking to obtain in our meditation practice are insights that are the result of direct experience, not of thought formations that make sense of uh, direct experience. Uh, and these are insights to do with the uh, fundamental truths of the way things are. So any insight that comes up that's in the form of a thought or interpretation that is making sense of things, this is an insight that can be and often is very useful, but uh, it's, not, it's not the deepest kind of insight that we're going for. And so it's good in itself, but it is a trap if we become infatuated with those insights so that we want to think more about them and figure things out. Or if we uh, it, it is a wonderful experience to have this dawning of understanding. So if we become uh, uh, very attached to that experience, so that every time we sit down and meditate, we're waiting for uh, these kinds of conceptual understandings to arise, then we've, we've lost the track of the path. And, uh, and as I was talking about on Thursday night, the experience that we'll have is that the quality that the mind will dutifully deliver insights, but the quality of the insights quickly diminishes. Whereas if you just stay with the practice, you will continue to have conceptual insights that arise, which you can embrace and accept and, and, and enjoy the reward of having. But as soon as it's arisen and you accept it and you go back to doing the practice that caused it to come up, rather than probing in your mind for other good ideas <laughs> or opening yourself, you know, listening carefully, following the breath while you're listening carefully to all these thoughts, hoping there's going to be another gem that comes up that you can seize on. Because if you do that, something will come up that looks like a gem, you know, but it's really a rhinestone. So. The insights to, to explain a little bit more, you didn't ask about this part, but... But I'm curious about it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the insights that we are going after is we're, we're trying to obtain insight into uh, those things that constitute uh, our ignorance or our delusion. And so by seeing things the way they really are, then we become liberated from the delusion and from the consequences of the delusion. And so specifically, the, the, three, the three problems that we have to overcome is that we are compulsively ruled by desire and aversion. And we are ignorant of the true nature of things and of ourselves. But it's by overcoming the ignorance that underlies it that we come to have 
the ability to deal successfully with the compulsions of desire and aversion. And the nature of our ignorance is, which you know I, I've talked about many times before, but I don't think it ever hurts to say again, is that we believe that we are a separate self existing in a universe that is in its turn also separately existing and distinct from ourselves. So, however we conceive of the boundary between ourself and, and the world, it is this basic uh, distinction that we are a separate self that is uh, very much at the root of uh, a lot of our suffering, as is the belief that the universe that we perceive really exists the way that it seems to. And so, um, as it's, as the three characteristics of existence are described as being the fact that um, it is impermanent, and its impermanence does not refer to the gross impermanence that even mountains fade away, but the impermanence that moment by moment uh, all that we cling to is arising and passing away, and that the closer we look, all we find is a flux. Secondly, that there is no self uh, to us or to other things, or uh, the other way of describing it is to say emptiness. And this is, uh, the fact is, that we're trying to discover through our insight, is that uh, the mind creates an illusion of self that we cling to, and that the mind creates an idea of the way the world is, but it is not a, an accurate reflection of any reality that's out there. What it really is is a reflection of the contents, the lifetime accumulated contents in here that produce that particular interpretation. And so that both the sense of self and external reality are empty. And then the third characteristic of uh, existence is that it is unsatisfactory, uh, often unsatisfactory to the degree of outright suffering. And, uh, that this is logical and reasonable, but if you cling to that which is uh, impermanent and has no self-nature and is only a projection of your mind, uh, you're, you're bound to end up dissatisfied. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that all of the things that we feel and think and say and do as a result of our attachment to the belief that we are the separate self that we think we are, uh, is at the root of our suffering. So that's the three characteristics. So when we're talking about vipassana or insight, you know, which is the goal of the practice, this is the insight that we're looking for. Insight into this deep layer of impermanence, this, uh, this profound fact of emptiness, and this inevitable consequence of dissatisfactoriness that comes from clinging to and attaching to what is impermanent and empty. But we're looking for this as a direct experience. So it makes it a vipassana, or an insight with a capital I, which is usually expressed in English, as opposed to uh, just an ordinary insight, is that it arises from direct experience rather than, than through cogitation. Because these, all of these characteristics are intellectually understandable and they are intellectually graspable. And as a matter of fact, the more that you think about them, the more you realize, well, yeah, it really is true. You know, yeah, that's the way it is. But it doesn't change the way that your mind reacts. It doesn't change the way that, uh, the, the, the feelings that arise and the kind of actions you perform out of them and the suffering that results. 
that change only takes place when there is a deep level of intuitive understanding of the that penetrates to a very deep level. And so that is obtained by having direct experiences of these. When your mind is completely open and receptive as possible, that you have a direct experience rather than an idea of these things. And because it's a direct experience, it alters your uh, the, your intuitive understanding and therefore alters the way that your mind responds to the appearances that arise at all times. So, uh, in meditation, you may have a wonderful intellectual understanding of impermanence. And this understanding may, may be arising out of uh, fleeting experiences of the truth of impermanence. Because in meditation, you begin to see that anything, anything that the mind is usually grasping at as an entity that upon closer examination, it dissolves into uh, a number of other things. So, you know, your in-breath dissolves into a number of different sensations. And if you examine those sensations more clearly, each of those dissolves into something subtler that is uh, constantly changing, and it's just sort of like a, a vibration. Um, and so, uh, and, and the thoughts that come, the thought will come and it will pass away and be gone entirely. And you start to notice that when the thought's gone, it's really gone. There's, you know, there's nothing, it's totally gone. Or even our recognition of some experience we're having while we're meditating. There's a sound and the mind labels it. And so there's the sound that comes and it goes away. Well, actually, what you notice is the sound kind of reverberates in the mind for a bit. But then when it's gone, it's completely gone. But then there's that thought that came up that identified what that sound was. And the same thing happens with it, you know. It's, uh, it's there and substantial, and then it just, and it's gone. And when it's gone, there's nothing left. And so you, you have these experiences of impermanence. And of course, they can give rise to the intellectual uh, uh, idea, oh, that's what they're talking about. Well, wow. yeah. but what you've done there is you've jumped into, into that realm of mental formations and conceptualization, which is fine in its place. And as a matter of fact, after you get up from your meditation, it, it's really good to reflect on these things and just you know, let this truth consolidate. But the real work is done when your mind is actually in that moment of seeing the things arising and passing away. And that's making the deeper change. And the insight comes when you're not your conceptual view of things, but your intuitive view of things changes. As far as the emptiness goes, that uh, usually the, the first form of emptiness that people can is the emptiness of the way the world appears. Uh, you may have the experience of seeing a, 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 in a very refined way the impermanence of your sensory inputs. And what happens is that it's a constant flux, but your mind grasps onto any pattern that repeats and gives it a label and an identity. You know, and of course, over a lifetime you constructed a whole understanding of how the world is. So a particular visual input or auditory input or any kind of sensory input, any combination of those, what it does is it immediately triggers the rising in your mind of this idea of what that object is, that there is this substantial thing called a fill-in-the-blank. You know, and that comes along with all these things that you know about that substantial thing and all of your feelings about it, how much you like it or dislike it or the good or bad experiences you've had with everything else. So in your meditation, as your mind becomes clearer and more settled, you'll have the experience of recognizing, 
catching your mind in the act of creating some piece of the world out of its ideas of what the world is. And there will come that clear recognition that, my goodness, everything I've ever known is really happening in here and not out there. You know? And that, that is an intellectual understanding, and it's very good. Same thing as with impermanence. But the most valuable work it happens with just the seeing of it. So if you can continue to observe that, rather than launching into, you know, what you could do when that happens in your meditation is you stop observing the phenomena as they experience, and the mind succumbs to the, inten uh, the temptation to think about it, remember what you read about emptiness, you know, and all of these things, and, and, be, and understanding it. And like I say, that's a good thing in its place, but you've lost this opportunity. You've got your mind to a place where you were actually having a direct experience of that, that was conveying the substantial truth, that wherever your sensations arise from, your mind constructs what you experience out of that, and there's no necessary uh, the, any assumption that the representation in your mind actually corresponds to what's out there is totally unverifiable. It, it's that direct realization that, oh my gosh, and just looking at that, oh my gosh, more and more, and I get out and thinking about it, that makes the deeper change. And that's the insight into that. And the same thing applies to the third of the insights, is that as the understanding, both conceptually and intuitively, of these things matures, then, you know, the mind comes to the obvious conclusion that that if I grasp to something that is in, in flux, you know, it, it's going to be gone. I'm never going to succeed in grasping to it. And if if I try to make my happiness depend upon it, it's always going to, it's always going to be lost. Um, that uh, if I spend all my time and energy trying to manipulate a world that's actually just made up in my mind, it's not going to produce the desired result. The better my time and effort go into the mind that's creating the world rather than, than desperately trying to uh, make her want to go out with me or get this, make more money or have this or have uh, get rid of this problem or so forth. Because that's not the source of the difficulty in Manhattanness that's what it's in here. So that too, you know, as with the other two, when you have the direct experience, it can trigger the insight. But what you really want to do is just allow yeah, allow the mind to to absorb the truth of these things through in its own direct experience of them. In some meditation techniques, uh, they make use of physical and mental pain or emotional pain to drive in this last point. <laughs> um, and that's easy to do because we come to understand that the self is an illusion before we stop attaching to it. And that is a painful combination. If if there is a mind that is still very attached to the idea of itself as a self, as an enduring and unitary entity, and it is being exposed to this information that says there is no such thing, there, instead of there being the experience of liberation, there's the experience of, of uh, fear and suffering and everything else. It's a matter of fact, it is confronting the same thing that we confront when we contemplate our death. Because when we contemplate our death, the fear arises that the self that we think we are will cease to be. And so the, the subtlety of the difference between a self that existed but is shortly going to cease to be, the difference between that and a self that never existed in the first place, 
can escape the emotional part of the, the mind. And so it can become very, very unpleasant and, and disconcerting. And this is the hardest insight to really grasp because, uh, well, as you sit here and listen to me, how easy is, is it to to absorb the idea that you really, that there really is no you the way that it seems to be? And even harder, how to grasp, if, if that's the case, why do I want to know? How is that going to help? Right? Really. And, and, and that's right. That is very, very difficult. That, as a matter of fact, out everything else in Buddhism compared to that is a piece of cake. It's an absolute piece of cake. Because the very mind that has constructed this self and is so attached to this self cannot conceive of there being anything good associated with the, the transparency and insubstantiality of this self. But the, the reason that it can is that when you overcome the separateness, you know, when you give up your separate, vulnerable, constantly battling with the other, then what you obtain is something that has all the attributes you were hoping for for the self. Because isness or suchness thusness, this has no beginning and it, it, it just is, right? It doesn't die. It's not impermanent. And if you give up the separate, constructed, impermanent self, what you gain is this unborn, unconditioned, unceasing thusness, which you really are. You're not separate from everything else. And when that is realized at the deepest level of your being, it is very liberating. You, you can joyfully become one with everything. You can look at the reality that you experience because the only way your mind can function is to uh, generate all these appearances that we've discovered are empty, but they no longer become frightening, uh, disappointing, uh, frustrating. Instead, they become embraceable as part of the wonder that is suchness. Can you see that idea? So the very same, you know, if you fear death, that is just an emotion that's being manufactured by a part of your brain that makes fear because your mind in its working has come to the conclusion that what I'm seeing uh, deserves fear as a response. So it turns on the part of your brain that makes fear and you feel fear of death or the contemplation of what would it be like to be without a, a self. Until the mind has deep insight, the mind's always going to come to the conclusion that, oh no, this is not a good thing. But when you can get to the point of the deep insight, and if you can take on faith that that exists and that's attainable and you can do it, then your mind comes to a different conclusion. And it's not, oh no, this is terrible. It's like, wow, this is great. <laughs> And so here we are as a part of this wonderful thing. Uh, you know, your only self is the five aggregates that we've talked about. And they are temporary. And they are not the self that you're used to thinking of and grasping to. But with this realization, those five aggregates can participate as a part of suchness from a place of joy and happiness rather than a place of constant struggle, uh, suffering because of lack, transient pleasure uh, that no matter, as, as soon as you start to grasp onto it, it, it loses its quality of being pleasurable because now it's 
something that's already in the process of being lost. So this this is this is the insight that we're looking for, not the intellectual understanding. The more deep insight you have, the easier the intellectual understandings are, and that's why it's really counterproductive when you get a taste of deep insight and an intellectual understanding arises. They get caught up into the intellectualization because you're you're depriving yourself of the real real fruit and benefit. You want to go for more of that deep insight. The work together though, the more easily, you know, these are pointing out instructions that the Buddha gave. You know, when he talked about the three characteristics and we he formulated this whole practice based on obtaining these insights, it's telling you what to look for. And in the sutras, he gives a lot of descriptions that well, the first time you read them with no meditation practices, what on earth is he talking about? But then as you have more experience and you go back and read the same thing, it begins to make sense because it's always, it's pointing to something, it's telling you what to look for, you know, and how to look for it. And so, uh, the intellectual side of it has a purpose. And there are some, some practices that involve a lot of thinking about and analysis of uh, these facts. You know, analyzing and convincing yourself that, that uh, at an intellectual level that these things are true. Because it, it helps to orient the mind towards recognizing the direct experiences that you have in meditation. And the other thing that is really significant in this is that these direct experiences are not unique to meditation, nor are they rare and hard to come by. They just mostly go unrecognized. We are all of the time having direct experiences of the very things that we're seeking insight into. But through the lack of adequate pointing out instruction and intellectual grasping, we don't know the significance of what arrives right in front of our face. So just to give you an example of that, one of the strongest groundings of the sense of self is that I am the doer and decider. Because, you know, that's certainly the way it seems to be. And I'm not the one that's deciding, well then, who is? Is that not the nature of your experience? And so that, that's, that's a sticking point for people, you know, okay, I can kind of understand this not-self stuff, except that I know that I'm the one that decides what I'm going to do. I make decisions. I do it all the time. So this is the illusion that we have. And we fail to notice that all day long, decisions come up that no I was behind. No I made them. They, they just happen. And because the I that we think we are is happy with those decisions, it says, oh, that was me. I, 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 I died. I decided that. You know, and they'll even be, yeah. Do they just happen willy-nilly, or do they happen through habits and and um, some input coming in through the sense, like you see a pizza or something, and all, next thing you know, you're eating it? Yes. Yeah, so, well, they, uh, the question is, do they happen willy-nilly, or do they happen due to, to habits and things? Uh, some, it, some input coming and, and into input. the senses. They happen because of input and habits and pre-existing formation. So you see, you may see a pizza and the next thing you know you find that you're eating it. And that's, that's because you've seen and eaten pizzas before and, uh, and that's, that's because they gave you a sense of pleasure and some unconscious process is uh, adding up all kinds of different things and says, oh good, the pizza's ready, I'll have a bite. But, um, you know, even getting out of it, it's very interesting. Uh, 
William James was sort of the father of modern psychology, and he wrote this huge book back uh, in 1905 of the Principles of Psychology. And uh, he spent a lot of time thinking, has whole chapters on the self and making decisions and things like that. And he had some of these basic insights, the ones that, and, and he had enough understanding and recognizing their importance. One of the things he talks about is getting out of the bed in the morning. And back in those days, they didn't have central heating. And winter would be kind of cool. You know? And he was very aware of the fact that he would wake up and that some part of him would say, well, we've got to get up, we've got a lot of things to do. And some other part of him would say, no, <laughs> it's nice and warm in here, I don't want to do that. You know, and so he would just watch his mind, and lo and behold, at some point, his body would get up and start getting dressed. And it was like, wow. And so he noticed that this happens all of the time, that decisions and ensuing actions uh, e even while we're thinking about them and, and wrestling back and forth with pros and cons, at some point, somewhere, a decision gets made and things happen. This happens all of the time. So, and it's the same case with all of these other things. I mean, none of the things that we can say about the dissatisfactory nature of the way we perceive the world and the way we interact with it is is foreign to our experience. We understand it intellectually, and we keep getting head or hit over the head with direct experience, direct examples of that. But we, because we're frozen into a wrong view, we're not able to see what's being presented to us. And so the value of the Dharma teaching and the value of the intellectual understanding, the value of the things that the Buddha pointed out to us, is it helps to change that view so that we're able to see the truth that's being presented to us over and over and over again, instead of constantly denying it and going back and doing the same things over and over again. Because that's, that's the problem that we have. That our unhappiness and suffering throughout your entire life has, it, it may seem to have been due to different causes at different times, but regardless of the uh, circumstances that are apparently the cause of it, the fact is that it's always happening because of the same pattern, that you believe there is a world, there is a self, myself wants to be happy and to avoid unhappiness, and therefore I am struggling with the world to make things happen the way they need to for me to be happy and not be unhappy. My question is um, related to the appliance of these realizations in this reality day by day. When you spoke about in meditation you observe the feeling mind and the feeling thoughts, how is it applying in when I'm sitting there and I have an idea and can I follow it or say, oh, it just will pass when I'm standing sitting? So is it like a can it lead to passivity? Pass pass passivity is it right? Passive um, reaction instead of going and following this spark, this idea, whatever it is. And that also relates to the self. In this life, we have to have a self to function, right? To, to move on in this world, whatever that is, world is. So how do you apply that, um, that insight of impermanence to, and here I stop and I'm going now and doing something, which is which is a self, an ego act, but it is also a function to live. Okay, so this was this is a large question, and I'm not sure that I heard you well enough to be clear on all parts of it. Now, first of all, are, are you talking primarily when you're not meditating? Yeah. Okay. yeah, how to apply so, this in my day. So how to apply this mm -hmm. in the world when you're out there mm -hmm. doing things. Mm -hmm. So a thought or intention arises. Right. And uh, and basically, what do you do with it? And what's the significance of it? Uh, 
And behind this is also the question that, well, if there's not a self, who's going to do anything? Or how's anything going to get done? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And you see, this is, this is what I mean about this is, the, this is the hard part. Because this is what we tend to think. That, well, if I didn't have an ego and I didn't have a self, then I'd never get anything done. I'd never do anything. I'd never want to do it. But that's not true. But the reason that it seems that way is because you have the illusion that it's a self that's been doing stuff. And the fact is, it hasn't. Nothing you've ever done has been done by yourself or decided by yourself. Yourself is a mental construct. And it's, it's born new every time it arises in your mind. This is one of the things that you can come to be aware of, is that sometimes there's just the experience, no self. And then other times, there's a self, and you, actually when there's a self, that's what you're experiencing. You're not experiencing the other stuff. You're interpreting the other stuff in terms of the self. And then you go back to experiencing whatever you're experiencing, and there's just the experience. But, yeah, it's, this is, people struggle to understand this and quite understand, you know, it's easy to see why they do. That, that if I get, you're imagining that you're going to get to a place where the self that you used to have is no longer there, so therefore, how am I going to do things? The truth is that the self was never necessary. The self never had anything to do with deciding to uh, eat the pizza or yell at somebody or you know whatever you did. Hard to accept, isn't it? The only self that had to do with that was the five aggregates. The collection, the, the, the uh, mental formations, the collection of all of these uh, habitual impulses and all of these past ideas and experiences and concepts, those things added together with your experience of the moment and the feelings you have in the moment, you know, uh, uh, they add up to a perception of what's happening now. And they also give rise to the volitional intention. And so everything that you've ever done and everything that you ever will do, and everything that a Buddha will ever do, is the result of the operation of these five aggregates. It's not a self. That's why we encourage you, look in the five aggregates and see, is there any self in there? And you can look under here, wherever you look, and you won't find this self that you think you are. You will find that five aggregates producing perceptions, experiencing feelings, generating volitions, and generating actions as a result of those volitions. That's what you will find. But you won't find that self. So what you're getting over, you're changing those five aggregates so that with certain experiences, instead of generating unhappiness or actions that cause harm to other beings, that those five aggregates function in a different way that's independent of this notion of self and desire and aversion, so that uh, the experience of suffering is not generated by those five aggregates. And the intention to commit actions that are harmful to others don't arise. Uh, so in that way, you and a Buddha are no different. It's just the Buddha has overcome all this other conditioning. And the Buddha has removed from the five aggregates the tendency to, to act and to feel as a result of desire and aversion. The way the Buddha has done this is by acquiring wisdom that obliterates the ignorance or delusion that those were, were based on. So, as far as the self goes, your five aggregates will still identify your laundry as mine, and me as a person that has to take it out of the pile. You know, so the five aggregates will still have the functional aspect of I, me, and mine. 
and you'll be able to, to be in the world. Uh, when you become a Buddha, there will, there will be no sense of this separate self and none of these compulsions that arise out of it. You will, in the process of becoming a Buddha, have cultivated in their place loving kindness and compassion. And it was very easy to do because as you gave up the self, you acquired suchness. And so, sort of five aggregates that dwell in the persistent recognition of suchness rather than a persistent recognition of self. Actions based on intellectual wisdom, because you're still functioning thinking mind, and directed by loving kindness and compassion are automatically produced by these five aggregates instead of the kind of behaviors that we see in an unenlightened worldling. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of, does this answer your question? <laughs> yeah, okay. Now as far as how you apply this in your daily life, I'm trying to get there, you're trying to get to this place of being a Buddha. As I say, the same insights that are, they happen in the much simpler and purified and more open context of meditation, but they're also, the experiences that have potential to give rise to these are also happening all of the time. And in your daily life, you want to cultivate more and more that mindful awareness so that the contrast begins to emerge between uh, between the reality that what you're experiencing is a projection of your mind and the delusion that it's real and needs to be grasped onto or reacted to uh, uh, in particular ways. And so that's the work that you want to do in daily life is to, uh, is to see these, these same, very same things. Now, when in meditation, when you have a direct experience, you want to continue to have direct experience. In traffic, that's not a good idea. In traffic, you may need to accept the value of the experience that has arisen and deal with the world and think about it later, or perhaps even think about it while you're dealing with the world. But you can't, you can't afford to stay always in that open place. Sometimes you can, though. Sometimes, you, sometimes there is, you, you can just go ahead and be in as much of a meditative state as you can when you have one of these experiences. And uh, people become, uh, uh, experience awakening and enlightenment, not just sitting on the cushion. If you look in the sutras, they're doing all kinds of different things. They're walking down the road, they're eating meals, they're listening to Dharma talks, they're banning the Buddha, you know, they're crossing a river. They're doing all kinds of stuff when, when it comes. But I think to get to the crux of it, you, you're not going to try to force yourself in the real world to abandon necessary thinking and action because that would be very bad. There is another side to this that I want to point out too, is that when you're meditating and a thought comes up, what you don't want to do is, oh no, a thought, bad thing, oh, get away from me. You know, because people can do that. I mean, the meditation instruction can be easily misinterpreted, but what happens is a thought comes and you know, you stay in this clear, focused, gentle, oh, there's a thought. That's the kind of thought, wonderful insight. Well, I'll have to think about that someday. Put it in your pocket mentally and gently bring your attention back to, back to the practice and see what else comes. Uh, everything that happens in, in your meditation potentially has something to offer to you. And Doing the practice properly doesn't mean that you have to scoot away from anything that arises so quickly 
but you don't have a chance to see it and understand what it may have to teach you. Back to the other side, back in the world, sometimes you just have to <laughs> to bend in the direct experience. Yes? Um, I wonder if you can relate that to the, uh, the experience of a flow state as described by Csikszentmihalyi, where you're, you can't tell the dancer from the dance. There's no sense of self. You're yes. just... Uh, the question was, can we relate this to the flow state described by Csikszentmihalyi? Uh, I can see that might as well. She's speaking Hungarian. Csikszentmihalyi <laughs> uh, is, is a psychologist, a brilliant person, uh, who has done a lot of study of a particular state of mind that arises, not in meditation, that he is designated as flow. And this is when people become extremely absorbed in an activity and they are blissfully happy and they have lost all sense of self. And this is, this is very much related to that. Uh, because we have, we all have flow experiences. Csikszentmihalyi uh, has studied those people that have frequent, prolonged, intense flow experiences. But we all have flow experiences where we become absorbed in suchness to a degree that we are no longer aware of ourself. We are just being, doing. And when that happens, it is, uh, it, it is a very calm and happy, or tranquil, tranquil and, uh, and, and happy place of mind to be whether it lasts for a short time or a long time. You all know what I'm talking about? This is what he talked about in his flow. He studied the people that get into this really intensely for long periods of time. Some surgeons, for example, you know, they love tinkering with other people's brains. And when they get into it, they just, they're blissfully lost in what they're doing, no thought of anything else. <clears throat> this, this relates to a number of things. Every time we immerse ourselves in suchness, then we will have temporarily freed ourselves from the sense of separateness and self. And so that is an experience, that's one of the experiences I was talking about. We all have these experiences if we only recognize them and recognize their significance. You know, and their significance is, holy cow, self isn't necessary, it's optional. Self isn't continuous and unitary. It's on and off. It was just off. Now it's on again. Um, so that sort of thing. The other thing that's significant is that these these flow experiences, although people aren't meditating, they're doing exactly the same thing that we do when we meditate. When you when your practice becomes refined, you experience the unification of mind, and this means that. Instead of your mind being this whole crowd of different impulses going different directions at the same time, we're all familiar with that mind, flow is where everybody's on board with the same thing. You know, Even the parts of your mind that aren't doing surgery are fascinated by watching it. They're not trying to pull the attention somewhere else. They're not throwing up worries and images and ideas about other things. They're with the program. That's what flow is. That's what unification of mind is. And the jhanas, the absorptions, these, these uh, wonderful meditative states that uh, uh, there is the loss of any sense of separation from the meditation object. And there is a sense of, of joy and happiness that's associated with it. That's a flow state. Somehow or another, meditators discovered that they could enter the flow state while, while sitting. And uh, so that's, that's the connection between these. What is really interesting is that um, 
flow states are very single-pointed. The jhanas, the absorptions, are very single-pointed. It was just one object, or a very, very limited object. And in flow states, a person is doing only one thing. That's what they have in common. <clears throat> what they tend to lack is introspective awareness, this higher perspective that allows you to objectively examine the nature of the mind itself. And that's the reason that people experience flow states don't become awakened beings. Instead, they seek to repeat the flow states. And if you've ever heard, you know, don't do jhana practice, it's dangerous. And that's the only way it's dangerous, is that a person could just want to keep repeating that experience instead of getting that place of introspective awareness. Jhana practice is a very powerful insight practice. It provides these kinds of insights. But that's because you have to be in the place of introspective awareness at the moment that you are going into the jhana. And then there's no introspective awareness in the jhana. And then if you rekindle that introspective awareness as you come out of the jhana, then what you are doing is you're seeing, experiencing directly the nature of the mind. And these jhanas are like, that's where they become, like peeling back the onion. You know, the first jhana, let's take away all sensory experience and all we've got is, is, uh, is the mind. And then we say, okay, well, let's, let's take away even the mental objects that we're observing. All right, let's take away the mental state. All right, let's take away the pleasantness that's there. And then all you've got is just the bare conscious experience of the mind and, and its contents. And it's observing that as you go into it, observing that as you come out of it, out of it is very revealing. And I suspect that people experience flow where you cultivate introspective awareness and, and examine their minds as much as they can in the process. And flow is not as deep as jhana. So they could probably learn to practice introspective awareness the same way we do in meditation while they're in the flow state. In that case, it would be more like the uh, samatha states that uh, precede uh, jhana. Is that the mind is unified, it's single-pointed, but it's not it's not immersed, you're capable of stepping back into that higher uh, perceptive level and, and gaining deep understanding in the process.